Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast. And wow, do we have a treat for you in this bonus episode with the legendary Marina Abramovich, who features in my upcoming book, The Story of Art Without Men, which you can pre-order now via Waterstones, and you can see the show notes for more. But just before we get to this episode, I am so excited to say that I will be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting this podcast for over two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection handcast in London's Hatton Garden from recycled silver and gold. Each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. And I couldn't be more excited to hand over to Alighieri's founder, Rosh Matani, to introduce the brand a little bit more and her thoughts on Marina Abramovich. I started Alighieri Jewelry when I was in a really dark time in my life, inspired by Dante Alighieri's story of being lost in the depths of the inferno. I began to create imperfect objects in wax, textured with my feelings as a means of catharsis. I would constantly look to Marina Abramovich's work, from the artist is present to counting rice, so many times moved to tears by her exploration of what it means to be human. Her ability to communicate so powerfully and universally without words has been a constant source of inspiration to me. It's a great honour for Alighieri to be supporting this incredibly special episode of The Great Women Artists. Thank you so much to Rosh Matani. Alighieri is offering a 15% off discount across their timeless modern heirlooms in celebration of this episode with the code The Artist is Present. Now to Marina. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most renowned artists living today, Marina Abramovich. The grandmother of performance art, Marina Abramovich has been instrumental in pioneering the genre as a visual art form for the last five decades. A genre defined by risk-taking, being present, a state of mind, emptying yourself and connecting with the energies of the surrounding public. Born in Belgrade, the capital of Yugoslavia in 1946, to communist hero parents, Marina Abramovich experienced a strict upbringing until the age of 29, she was under a curfew until 10 o'clock, resulting in the artist running away a few months later. Since the beginning of her career in the 1970s, Marina has stretched the limits of the body and mind as both object and subject. Early works include Rhythm Zero, 1974, where she became an object of experimentation for the audience, laying out 72 objects, including a pistol, and stating they could be used on her as desired, or Rhythm 5, 1974, where she lay in the centre of a burning five-point star. She has withstood pain, exhaustion, and danger in her quest for emotional and spiritual transformation. Never ever slowing down, in 1997 she won the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale for a work that commented on war in Yugoslavia and in 2010 she took over the MoMA for The Artist is Present where she sat motionless in a chair for eight hours a day. The show broke records attracting 850,000 visitors. In 2012, she founded the Marina Abramovich Institute, a non-profit foundation for performance art, and has since exhibited at the world's most prestigious institutions, earning her a global following. In 2023, she will be the first woman to have a solo exhibition in the main galleries of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. Marina Abramovich, how are you doing today? Oh my God, after this introduction, <laughs> you know, it's a kind of heavy introduction. <laughs> it's almost like you have to die and then you read this at the funeral. But you know, I progress from grandmother into godmother, <gasps> from the godmother 
I really actually claim myself warrior. So I kind of give up godmother and grandmother uh, the completely way. So I prefer warrior because all my life, whatever I've been doing, I've been warrior. Absolutely. Okay, you are the warrior of performance art. So Marina, thank you so much for having me on. I should mention we're drinking Yorkshire Gold tea in your apartment in New York City right now. It's such an honor to speak to you. I have been lucky enough to see your work around the world, whether it be at the Louisiana in Copenhagen, 512 hours in Serpentine, but also on giant screens in Piccadilly with your most recent work. When I witness these works, something changes and a physical, emotional, spiritual transformation takes over. It is unpredictable. It is almost impossible to define, but there is this spark and this electricity that carries through me and so many people in the room that allows for this connecting energy. It feels real. So I want to start by asking you, how do you hope for people to feel when they are confronted with your work? You know, there's so many different ways how you can understand my work and how you can experience. But I'm always interested much more in a kind of idea how you know is a good work of art, what you make good work of art. And I have this example. Let's say you go to the museum and you look around and you stand in the front of one work of art that you like. But you're standing there and observing, but some strange force draws you that you actually turn and see what is in the back. And in the back of you, that you didn't see in the first moment, you see another work of art. So, for me, good work of art is this energy who turns you without even seeing it, that actually it's behind you. So the good work of art have a certain energy. They have to be emotional. You know, I'm not crazy about the work that have to be so much explanation, that you have to read the text, that you have to, you know, read lots of lots of information in order to understand the work. I would like to have the work that can be understood on every level. You know, person cleaning the street or the president of the country or, or the just the child and have to move them and when they move them you know even to the tears I actually reach that point that, that I touch your heart in some ways but I have this friend of mine he's the writer he said to me I hate your art. I say, why? He say, you always make me cry. <laughs> and you know, because the critics, the writers, they're intellectual. They like to understand by head. They don't want to feel in stomach. My work, you have to feel in stomach. Totally. And it's about getting you in the gut and also not knowing what it is at first. And then an artwork slowly revealing itself to you as well. You know, it's an artwork that gives you something. It gives energy towards you. But you know, it's very interesting to do that. You have to make very simple. Yeah. You know, this is the thing. When I have an idea, I start complicated. I start with so many elements and it's becoming more and more and more complicated to reach the point. Now I have to reduce to absolutely bare nothing. I mean, the show in Moma where they draw so many visitors that you just mentioned in your introduction, the show starts so simple. There was a two chairs and table, very conventional way. And I asked the public to sit without talking, touching me any amount of time they want. It was up to them. I just look at my eyes. And I remember curators say of the show, but you're crazy to do this in New York. In New York, nobody have any time and this chair will be empty. What are you going to do? I say, I don't care. I will sit anyway. And then, in everybody's surprise, chair was never empty. People slept in the front of the museum, wait hours to sit with me and so on. But what was really interesting, that during the first two months, I had this very kind of conventional structure that there was a table and two chairs. But then there came the man in the wheelchair. And I was thinking, oh my God, this table obstructs the view. I don't even know if this man have legs or not. And then I, you know, the third month, I asked security of mom, I say, I want to remove the table. I have to be just two chairs. That's it. I don't need this table. And there was so much discussion because for them, the table was a buffer. If something will happen, we are in America, everybody have guns, you know, it's complicated. Yeah. But then I insist, I say, this is my piece, and absolutely unquestionable, but we have to remove the table. The moment the table was removed, the direct contact with the audience was so much stronger. And there was something that, that moved everybody. But again, you know, in one day, I don't even need a chair. I don't need anything. I think that in 20th century, in the 90s, somebody asked me, what is the, the, the future of art, you think? And I say, you know, for me it's immaterial. And not just immaterial, but future of art is the, you know, kind of artist standing in the front of audience 
and create this energy dialogue with audience and there's nothing in between, absolutely nothing. And that's the power of it as well. This might be such a simple question, but what is it about the body being present that you think is so vital? You know, the body is the microcosmos and understanding your own body, you understand the world. And we never actually put much attention to our body. We try everything else to do that actually we busy. We are constantly busy. We wake up in the morning, you open your emails, you make your phone calls, you check your messages, you run away, you meet the friends, you have a dinners. You never sit and do absolutely nothing. And to me, doing absolutely nothing is the beginning of something. Because then when you really, the body start talking to you, understand what it is. So to me, the body is universe. This is why it was so important to me. Them. And when I find out that actually this is my kind of uh, main focus on, on my work is my own body. But if you actually go deeper in your own body, you can come much more universal to other side. Because we all have the same DNA. We all have the same bodies. We all have the same destinies. So that is something I like to communicate. And it's just the power of listening to your body. You know what you were saying about these emails or the busyness of life. You know, whenever I'm going through a tough time, I try and figure it out up here. And actually, when you listen to your body for five minutes, that's what's telling you the answer. You know, to listen to the body, body have the ancient knowledge. It does exactly tell you with intuition what to do. We fucked up with the mind. Mind is overthinking. Mind is <laughs> That's over the Renaissance fault. <laughs> mind is overthinking, always, you know. And then you make things too complicated. But actually, the body is the one who really have wisdom, seriously. That's the wisdom of the body that we have to learn to go back to. And we have to go back to simplicity. And, and this is something that... You know, in the end, you know, if you're a young artist, you need so much stuff because you're so insecure. You will never just stand in the front of the audience and do nothing. But I actually, after 50 years of career, I can learn to do that. And it's scary and it's difficult and whatever. I just recently made a lecture in Kaunas, which came 6,000 people. They didn't have anywhere place to put them. They put them in basketball stadium. <laughs> and I don't know any artist doing, you know, lecture of 6,000 people. This is sea of people it was so scary and i remember i stand up i just stand there and i wait till the actually the body tells me what to do and just the words start coming and, and this was really a very moving lecture and went for two and a half hours and I really want to do stadium. I am dying to do stadium. <laughs> I'm sorry, you could sell out every single stadium across the world. How have you not done a stadium yet? I was thinking, how that We're in New be. York, let's go. <laughs> but also all this energy of the people in one point, you know, and so interesting. But you know which is more much interesting problem? Interesting problem I call, I made my own word, I call body drama. You know what is the body drama? When you have... 300,000 people, 500, half a million. When you have rock concerts, when you have this huge amount of people standing there and they're worshiping you and you're, you know, doing your magic. And then all energy is go from that people to you. You bring it back, going to you, bring back. And in one point, the lights go off. The show is over. You are left as a singer, musician, whatever, with all this energy of half a million, 250,000 people in you. This energy, if you doesn't know what to do with this, is energy who destroy you. Yeah. Is energy totally destructive? You, then you you can't go down. You you're too high. You have to take a drugs. You have to drink. You have to do whatever. You know this is what I call body drama. So this is very important in in my practice. This is why I developed something called Abramovich method, yeah. which I you know teach and also you know my institute is is presenting Abramovich method is a kind of system that I learned through different cultures. What you do with the body when it's too high? What you put the body when you absorb this energy? How you actually not being destructive but being actually constructive positive how that energy can feed you and not destroy you but there's this like moment of invincibility with that right like even i get such highs after certain things as audience yes yeah. absolutely and so when for example you were doing the artist as present i mean how did you deal with that you know this is a, a lot of training a lot of working yeah. because every single person who come and sit in front of you then he leave. He left you with 
all everything of, of that person, all his problems, insecurity, melancholy, sickness, depression, everything. So you have to close your eyes and clean yourself. You Only the, this kind of work you can do if you empty yourself each time after each person. You have to be kind of empty, empty vessel. Yeah. And then new energy comes and then you feel and then again empty. This emptiness is very important to empty yourself. Totally. And then you can allow for everything to come back in as well and recharge and reset. And you were born in 1946 in Belgrade on the 30th of November. I'm fascinated by your upbringing, your childhood. When did you know that you wanted to use the body? Was the body important to you as a child? No. You know, first of all, my child was so fucked up. <laughs> first of all, when I was born, no, first of all, my mother dreamt that she's giving birth to the huge snake that she told me once. You know, it was, I, I, later on in my life, worked lots with snakes. I didn't know why. Then she was in the party meeting. You know, my mother was, as, as my father, national heroes. So after the war, they've been very much, you know, in communism and in politics. So my mother was at the party meeting, leading the party meeting when her water broke. And she didn't want to go to hospital because she wanted to finish the meeting because she's, you know, my mother, when she took her tea out, she never used injections it was the pain is is something that you have to conquer i mean that kind of family so when she gave birth i was premature and uh, i was put in incubator and then after you know she had a lot of complications after the birth and she she gave me to my grandmother so i was with my grandmother till i was six years old and i remember by strange people coming on the weekends bringing me presents which i didn't like <laughs> which was my mother and my father and the presents they're like i never like to play with the dolls i hated all these objects i like to play with shadows with the shadows of the like a car passing on the windows or creating my own shadows by myself stuff like that and then when I was six, I was bringing back to my home of my father and mother when my brother was born. And then, you know, I was kind of not nice childhood at all. But I remember that they developed very early sickness, which they think was hemophilia. And they put me in hospital for one year. And there was like a bleeding would not stop for a long time. But then finally they find out it was hemorrhabia, which is kind of disease that you can bleed for long and then they stop, which actually disappeared in my puberty. And then my entire world in that time, because mother and father was always busy, and I was left by, you know, just to play by myself, it was to create my own reality. It was about books and poetry and reading and painting. I was painting, I think, since I was born. And my first show, I was 14. And I was so incredibly jealous of Mozart because he started with seven. I was too late. <laughs> I said, oh my God, I, my career is gone. <laughs> And, and I was painting and painting and painting. I have a different periods even, and I had these exhibitions. But when I was about my 19 or 20, I was painting clouds. And I remember I was always looking at the sky and I developed all different types of clouds. The clouds who are coming, the clouds who are projections, the clouds who are hitting the human bodies, the clouds as a black holes, and so on and so on. And I was always lying somewhere in the field and looking at the clouds. And one day I lie in the field and look at the clouds totally no clouds blue sky absolutely blue as you like in greece yeah and i look and look and look and out of nowhere 12 military plane arrive it just crossed you know like ultrasonic like boom yeah and when they they cross the sky you have this incredible drawing you know from f how they make uh, from the air and i was looking absolutely mesmerized with this drawing who was very first very clear and then become more and more dissolved until they disappear into blue sky again this was for me the most spiritual experience at that time i never went back to studio i never want to paint something two-dimensional i just got this realization but why i could make drawings with the planes i could use my body i can use fire water earth whatever you know why i have to go into studio and be so kind of limited so i went to military base because my father was is the general and i asked them if they can give me 12 planes to paint the sky you know they called my father and said, your daughter is totally crazy get her out of here <laughs> <laughs> because because there's no way, you know, you know how much cost this. 
So this was, you know, not a realized project. But then since then, I started working with the sound. This was the first. Yeah. And the sound was so interesting. I wanted to put the sound on the bridge falling down. So when you're sitting on the bridge or standing on the bridge, you see the bridge existing, but with the sound, it disappears. So you have these two possible, you know, vision, acoustic disappearance and visual actual existence. And I went to the city hall to ask for permission. They again called my family because they say that the bridge from vibration can really fall. So this was not possible. But then I didn't give up. I put the speakers on the building that I was living with the other families and with the, with the sound of building falling down. After five minutes, everybody ran out thinking it's earthquake. And I had a huge trouble in family. <laughs> so I, had to, I could not do this either. So this was all my, you know, starting my, my early works. And then with the sound, slowly, I started involving the body. At the moment I started working with my body, I had electricity. I had a kind of fever. I had a total total, total kind of experience of so strong that it's nothing I can replace than direct work with public. So performance became my medium. It just reminded me of when I went to go and see 512 Hours at Serpentine. And I remember it wasn't you, but it was one of your people. They held my hand and I had this shockwave that honestly went through my body. I'm not joking. I was, Are you, I was you're like, British, they're so sensitive. <laughs> I was like 18 or 19 and it just, it just hit me. I mean, it was like nothing before. And also it's about this stillness and listening to what is inside right there. But I mean, then obviously you were still living with your parents in your 20s, but you were going to perform these other performances. I mean, thinking about like Rhythm Zero, this incredible work, I think first performed in Naples in 1974, <laughs> where you had this table laid out and your body, you said that use these objects in front of me. How did these works come into fruition? You know, in my work, I come also from lots of dreams in the way how I work. First of all, I hate studio. Studio is a trap. Okay. To me, just like people, you know, artists go to studio like all day long and they wake up in the morning, they're all day in the studio. I'd much rather hang out here with you uh, drinking tea. <laughs> you know, to me, to me, studio is like you go to the bank or you go to a factory. <laughs> I don't like it. I do life. Life, all my inspiration come from life and come in not just with life, but also I call this space in between or detours. When you don't even do something straight, but you make a detour. I like going to the train station when I was young, and I would not go, and I would have just a little money to have for the ticket, but then I would buy the, the ticket on the train, so they will not know where I'm going. And then I would just come out in the station, and then I would look for a sign, something that my intuition would bring me, or do something different. So to get out of you comfortable zone, out of your protected box, to do things that they are not repetitive, to find always different ways to buy the milk from your house, not just one direction. I mean, also to do things to surprise yourself. Yeah. And then ideas come like from everywhere. They can come in cutting garlic in the kitchen, lots of ideas come in the kitchen, sitting in the toilet, you know, going to the aeroplane, waiting in the bus stations. You know, I call it space in betweens. Space in between is very interesting because this is where the time when you leave you, your comfortable house in very secure place and you go somewhere that you didn't arrive yet to create another security place. But space in between is this zone which then belong to you, actually. When you open to your destiny, then interesting things are happening. So to me, also traveling to the countries that I've never been, you know, going to the market, in, especially in the culture that you can't compare with your own culture, going to the market and buying stuff that you don't know is a fruit or is animal or is vegetable, or what the hell is this, bringing to your little room and experimenting, what the hell is this? You know, just opening eyes to everything. It's very important, doesn't matter how old you are, to always make possible to see with your eyes like a child, like for the first time, everything. And also to have lots of happiness about this whole thing. You know that in my case, I'm not connected very much to my generation. My generation sucks. <laughs> yes, they, they, they're always complaining. They're always doing this. They're always, you know, there's something is always past better. They live in the past. I live in present and future. And I can connect only with the young people because they are for me, the, 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 they, they connect me with the, the spirit of time I live. 
yes. But I also love the sort of multi-generationalness of it. As, as a young person, I also love to connect with people older than me because I just think it's phenomenal that people have lived such a long time and they've, and they've seen so much and they've done but so much. But only the enthusiastic ones. Yes, 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 no, yes. They're, they're all other <laughs> Choose them wisely. The whole other category <laughs> don't connect. <laughs> But a work like Rhythm Zero, I mean, how did that come about? Well, the Rhythm Zero, I was angry. I was angry on the entire treatment of performance art because, you know, when I started in the early 70s, performance art was like, everybody, everybody think was the people should be put in mental hospital, that we are crazy. This is not art, it's nothing. What? You know, it's very interesting how that actually there is a lot of relation between 70s and NFT now yeah. in what's happening today and how everybody's against NFT and he said it's bullshit and it's not art. It was same, absolutely the same I experienced in the 70s. You know, it was such a, it was such a minority of, of artists doing this and believing that media as a superior media to every art because of immateriality. And the same NFT is totally immaterial too. This is why I'm very much connected right now. But then, you know, in that time, also, they say we are Mazuhis, we are Sadis, this is bullshit. So I was thinking, okay, what if I absolutely do nothing? I'm dressed in a, just black jeans and T-shirt. I'm standing in the, in the space of the gallery. I say to the gallery, six hours. I put a table with 72 objects, everything including the um, foot pleasure and pain and bullet with a pistol. Bullet separate, pistol separate, you can put the bullet in pistol. And the little message, I'm an object, you can do everything you want with me, including, you know, killing me. And I'm going to take all responsibility. And to see, okay, if the public is so opinionated and the, how shitty we are, what if I don't do anything and leave everything to the public? What public going to do? I mean, I was 23, but like you. When I done this piece, it's it's kind of crazy, you know. Can you imagine today this piece in America? <laughs> but it's just remarkable in the sense that you put all your trust in the public. By the way, public can kill you. Definitely, yeah. this was my kind of conclusion. I'm also fascinated by this difference of like the how men and women both reacted to it. Yeah, but you know, it's just very interesting that it was in Italy, and the projections that was actually projecting on me, it was Madonna mother and prostitute three projections it's uh, incredible and the women will tell men what to do and will, and will never do anything they will take tears out of my eyes but basically the only reason i'm not raped it was because the there was also the, the women with the husbands and they came there for the opening because it was a normal opening but this went till two in the morning so the energy changed you know and changed become more and more aggressive you know it's i i really really I was lucky that I survived. And after the six hours was up, I mean, because obviously you're in performance mode, I mean, what happens afterwards? Do people see you differently afterwards? When I finished it after six hours, the galleries came and said six hours is finished. And I started walking. I was half naked, bleeding. It was looking like hell. And everybody ran away. And when I came back to my hotel, I look in the mirror and I have a piece of gray hair. Since then, I paint my hair. <laughs> I never <laughs> want gray hair. <laughs> But it was really, really something incredibly emotionally, uh, the charging. It was very difficult piece. It's very interesting that this piece, Rhythm Zero, 25 years later, I made artists present. Yeah. And these two pieces have very much in common. In Rhythm Zero, I actually was testing the public in the lowest spirit as possible. If they wanted to cut me, if they wanted to put water on me, if they want to take my clothes, give me the rose, put the points in my of the rose, the thorns in my body, all of this torturing stuff, you know, and I give them possibility and free will. In artists is present, I learned the lesson and I was interested in how I can put the spirit of my public up. So everything was restricted except the gaze. But the gaze at the door of the soul. And really worked. I learned my lesson. And then in 1975, you met Ulai. And I'm fascinated by this because when you then started performing with someone, how did that change your body? How did you feel? Thanks God that I met Ulai. <laughs> <laughs> because who knows what I will do next. <laughs> but you know, when I met Ulai, he had a half face painted like a woman with the complete makeup and lipstick and long hair. And other half face unshaved. And uh, and short hair like a man, so he a man and woman together, and I saw him, 
And I never saw anybody in my life like that. You know, half man, half woman, just walking on the street. Yeah. And you know, because he was playing with that male, female, and I was in my work so much male, because my work was very tough, even for any man, it, it was tough work. So when we met, we start first fall in love madly, and then figuring out how we I, be, I become female and become male, and how we can actually create this dynamic and explore that kind of subject, male, female. And we've done many performances in that direction. And also the performances were done on our birthdays because we are exactly same day born. But you then stopped working with Ulai. I mean, how was it sort of to venture out on your own again? It's so interesting. When we start working together, for me, it was so much more interesting than working alone because we actually put two energy, male, female, together, which we call that self, into the third energy, something that we didn't want to deal with our egos. It was not important. It was my idea or his idea. We melted together, melted together every time, and we never actually this to tell to anybody who idea come from. It was just one work made by two artists. So it was a very strong period of 12 years. But then in this various period, you know, life goes on. And in life, we start disagreeing. And also, he was cheating. He was sleeping with other women. And I was very much in pain. And this comes, it was so banal, you know, reasons why we actually decide we can't go on anymore. And in the beginning, we wanted to walk Great Wall of China to Merit. Each of us walk two and a half thousand kilometers, meet in the middle and Merit. But the Chinese took eight years to give permission, and China was closed at that time. After eight years, we already were splitting, and the Chinese say yes. And we, as we never give up anything in our life, any idea of, who, of how, as long it takes, we are doing it. We say, okay, then we're going to do this walk, but say goodbye. And this was like the longest walk to say goodbye to anybody in any relationship. It was three months. He's walking two and a half thousand kilometers. I'm walking two and a half thousand kilometers, three months. And we say goodbye. And a friend of mine, the American friend, he said to me, why we just need to make phone call? <laughs> <laughs> but we want to have something romantic, but also something as artwork, you know, because we became artwork. What was going through your head when you were walking those 2,500 kilometers? This I can't tell you. I, I wrote the poetry. I made the, the work exhibition. I made the piece, Life and Death of Marina Abramovich, directed by Bob Wilson, which entire section, it's about that walk in China. So much stuff, you know. It's been very difficult. We are walking 30 kilometers per day in literally climbing the wall who was completely in ruins. The only part, the wall that you know from the photographs is the one around the cities. Yeah. Everything else is a ruin. I was climbing, you know, climbing the wall and and going to villages and, oh God, I don't even know where to start. It's just been it's been incredible, incredible story with the China. I'm hoping now because of, it's so complicated with the COVID, but we, we are planning that big show in China, really based on the Great Wall. And I remember in Venice Biennale four years ago, I saw a very young artist, just photographs of him walking the wall. And I was like, wow. So another Chinese artist walking the wall. And I was with the curator of the show. And I said, I will absolutely want to meet him because, you know, I have to walk the wall. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he came and he said, oh, my God, he, I just saw him in a cafe. I'm going to call him. So he came and I said, oh, my God, you also walked the wall. How long took you? He looked at me, completely surprised. Oh, just you take these photos. What? He didn't even do it? No. No. <laughs> What? And I say, oh my God, young kids have a totally different approach. And you say you love our generation. No, I still, come on, this was an easy way. But he didn't have the, the trauma of, of the saying goodbye. He just went to the world and photographs. That's wonderful. I think it was wonderful. Amazing. And I'm fascinated, during this time, obviously you split up after 12 years, it was 1988. In the 1990s, were you still living in Amsterdam at that point or were you here in New York? And, and, and how did you kind of make the transition into being your own person again? Because like you talked about earlier, this idea of the kind of almost third energy, how did you kind of retract that or get that back into yourself to make it binary? You know, after the walking the wall, I was 40. This was 
so hard because you know till that time all our works were signed together with two other names we split we say goodbye we stopped talking for seven years by the way completely and then i was left with nothing because every time you know you split in your relationship you still have your own work to go back i didn't have my work to go back this was the worst thing in my life i was totally kind of naked in the front of the world and I was very depressive, and I have to reinvent myself completely. And then I start working like hell, <laughs> and work and work. And I start, in the beginning, I didn't do performances. I was doing something called transitory objects, where actually objects that I build in order the public can experience what I experience in the wall, but using different materials, crystals, the copper, the, the metals, the, the iron, and so on and so on. And then the public will actually sit in three different positions of human body, sitting, standing, lying, and for long periods of time to just get into the state of tranquility. So I was doing that, and then slowly I go back to performance. And then I was living in Amsterdam. And then after that, I say, okay, let's move to New York. Had you been to New York before? I've been in New York in 78 for the first time and then do very short trips. You know, the shop trips, you go to New York like a like week, you know, and come back. That's not New York. And then the, in that time, I um, was together with an Italian artist and which we married and marriage lasts only two years. He definitely want to come back to New York. And I say, my, in that time, I was, I was in my late 50s. I say, my God, if you go in that already, you're too, too old for New York. Because in New York, you know, nobody knows anything except what happened in, your, in front of their eyes. So you can be, have a great career in Europe. If you're not in New York, they don't know. And then I came here. And actually, I made three performances in New York which established me as a really different artist and different international fame. This was first one, it was House with Ocean View. The second one was Seven Easy Pieces of Guggenheim. And the third one was The, the Artist is Present. And after this, New York was open for me. And do you feel like you get energy from a place when you're here? New York is insane. <laughs> you know, Susan, Susan Zontag, who I was so lucky to be her friend the last five years of her life. I'm so jealous. She said to me, if you live in New York, you can't live anywhere else. And I really prove it's true. First, New York is built on granite. And energy is bouncing back. It's not earth. So it's bouncing back constantly. So you wake up in the morning, you have sound pollution, visual pollution, consumption pollution. You know, everything is vibrating and you're doing things. And then next day, like you didn't do anything and it starts all over again. And it's incredible energy. I mean, you have to get the place in the countryside that I go in the weekends. <laughs> Otherwise, the New York can eat you. It's a dangerous place, really. And, you know, I, I, now when I go to Europe, everything is like slow motion. I go to London, slow motion. Paris, they're sleeping. I mean, everything is like slow. I know. It's a Sunday morning here in New York, and it's already just buzzing. I mean, no, literally. And, and the, the amount of stuff you can see, the amount of people you can meet, Every single minute, it's just incredible. And then, you know, the people have these humongous kitchens and they just call delivery food because they don't time to anything. You don't have to cooking. You don't have to, to live life. You just, you know, constantly you have to deliver. It's a good way of living. I'm fascinated in 1997, you won the Golden Lion for Balkan Baroque, which was this very powerful piece where you washed the blood off cow bones. Can you tell us a bit about this piece? And also, you know, for me, in a way, just from the world that we're living in right now, that work feels so poignant. You know, when the, the war in Yugoslavia started, Slavic war, for me, I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed of, of my country. I was so ashamed of the killing. I was so ashamed of the, the, the nationalism, this old hate between, you know, I, I live completely different time. I live in time of Tito, which was seven republics, we became seven countries. And that time, you know, we, I, I, my family come from Montenegro. I was born in Belgrade. I studied in Croatia. I have friends in Slovenia. Everything was connected. We didn't have this kind of separation. We didn't have the, you have to take passport to go from one country to another. It's kind of insane. And I left before anything of this happened. I was gone. And then, you know, I've been asked immediately to produce the work of art. 
and many artists, you know, in, in different countries, that, that done something in response to the war. And I could not. I could not. It was too close to me. It was close, close to, to, to emotionally. So after I was invited for the Venice Biennale from Montenegro Pavilion, from the curator, I give this idea to do the Balkan Baroque. And then Ministry of Culture of Montenegro said that this is absolutely insane, that he will never let this piece to happen because it's first smell bad, second is it's, I'm not any artist because performance is not art and so on. And then the Germano Celan, the chief curator of Biennale, heard about this and gave me the space in the main pavilion to present internationally. And they say to me, but because you're so late, we only have one place for you. And this is basement. Wow. I say, I could not have better than basement for yeah. this place. Yeah. It was perfect. They're but equipped. if you can imagine 2,500 bones to wash every day <sighs> for hours and hours and hours with meat on it in temperature of 35 degrees Celsius in Venice. Oh, my gosh. And the smell was incredible. And every morning I will come. And the worms come out of my pockets and everywhere from the bombs. It was, you know, people remember this piece, but they remember lots of smell of that piece because this was unbearable. But the piece was really, uh, you know, it was not about Baroque in a kind of cultural sense of historically. It was Baroque of Slavic mind. We are such a difficult people to understand. I always say the Balkan is a bridge where the winds blow. And it's very difficult to be in the middle. You're blowing to one way to another way. Is where the Eastern world meet Western world. Eastern sense of time and the Western sense of time. It's also the world when hate and love is so connected. Irrationality. You know, nobody could understand how after 20 years you kill your neighbor. It's just all of these things are so difficult to understand. And this is why to do this piece, I went back to Belgrade and I said, I'm going to do something to be clear to me what I'm doing. I'm going to interview my father and my mother and the man who catch the rats for 35 years of his life. And that man who catch the rats, because lots of rats in our country, he's tell me the story how in Balkan they make wolf rat. And that story became actually the story of Balkan Baroque and washing these bones. And he said, and that's what I actually, I am in the, in the video, I am a doctor, like rat catcher, and tell the story. And then after that, I turn into the bar singer and sing in the erotic way. It's like that contradiction between one and another image. So the story of Balkan rat catcher is that actually rats don't eat members of their own family. And to catch the rats, he fill the holes, rat holes, and leave only one hole left. And then they start coming out. And he only pick up the male rats. And he can catch 30 to 40 in that way. He put them in the cage and he give them only water to drink. But the rats have this, uh, the, 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 actually physically, their teeth are growing all the time. So this is why they, can ground, they have to ground something. <gasps> but as they're giving them only water and the rats getting teeth, they, even they will never actually kill members of their family, they start actually killing and eating the weak one, the weak one, the weakest one in the cage till only one rat is left. And then when rat is left, the, the rat catcher very carefully observing his teeth growing because now it's nowhere to go and nobody to eat. So his teeth growing, growing, and just before suffocating, he opened the cage and he take the knife and take his eyes out of the rat. He blind him. And then he let him out. So the rat is blind, almost dying because teeth are growing. He's outraged. And he ran into rat holes of his family and killed everybody on his way. Till one more superior rat killed him. This is the way how they make wolf rat in Balkan. This was for me the actual story of what happened to us. And how is it reflecting on that th nearly 30 years on? I mean, how do you think it speaks to the world we live in today? I think that image of me washing the bones, it, it was very important to me to create something that is universal. Yeah. That time was war in Yugoslavia. Then we have Iran. Then we have Afghanistan. Then we have Syria. Then, then we have Ukraine. You know, it's very important as an artist to create something that is very personal but transcendental in the same time. And this image, I think, is transcendental. 
And then in 2001, you made The Hero, which is also what you've turned into an NFT at the moment. And this is such a powerful image. It's a picture of you on a horse, on a white horse with a white flag. And that image compared to Balkan Baroque is obviously completely different. It's almost as though you've kind of come out of the ground and there's this kind of victory or something. I mean, this this work was made in 2001. I know that it was made in the wake of grieving for, for your father. I'm fascinated what drew you to making the hero then and what it meant to you then. You know, at that time, you know, my my father was really a national hero in a real sense. He went for the communist ideas already in the 30s for the prison. And he he was fearless. He could do anything and in the in the war, you know, and he was always on the white horse. And then I really had this image of him, you know, when he died to me, I wanted to continue that, that feeling of heroism, of feeling that you can conquer anything, that you have ideals that you live for, and there is something about honesty and morality. And uh, when he died, I dedicated this piece to him. Actually, I went to South uh, Spain in this foundation, NEMAC, that they breed horses. I said, please give me the most beautiful white horse you can yeah. have. And then I have this, the flag. It was not easy to make this piece because of course, have to, he's lots of wind, but he have to be absolutely motionless. So the whole idea is that the wind is flying the flag and, and is moving my hair. And there is something heroic with the landscape and the possibility we are going somewhere, we're going to future, we're going to this beautiful land, we're going to, to see you know, how the world can be a good place. And that was at that time. But now, you know, I, I was thinking it's very important to look you old works and to see possibility if they can actually serve another purpose, another time. Because good work of art have many layers. Good work of art can be social and political and emotional and ask the right questions and to create limits and to predict future. This is good work of art. And I hope that this work have some of these layers that actually today can be understood in the right way. It's about peace on this planet. You know, we never learn the lesson of humanity. We never learn the lesson why we are not stop killing each other. It's incredible. And we are doing over and over again different purposes for the church. It's about politics. It's about whatever bullshit, you know, the, the, the our humans invent. But we really need to understand that we are living in the most beautiful blue planet in galaxy yeah and that we have to take care of this you know i want to tell you one another story i always say to everybody who comes to new york go to the museum of national history there is a, the little observatory yeah and mostly for children and every 15 minutes you can go in and you go in and then they have, they have a replica of milky way and you sit in a very comfortable chair and this whole galaxy opening to you is, is like 3D, you know? Wow. And then you have Milky Way. And then the voice like Joseph, like a, like a, the the Clooney, you know, the George Clooney, George Clooney, <laughs> yeah. some in this direction, or Brad Pitt, or some of this yeah, kind yeah. of voice. He, and then the light lasers show you, you see galaxy, and there's a tiny little thing, and then voice say, "This is the planet Earth." And I look, this, we are not even in Milky Way. We are in outskirts. We are somewhere like, a, I don't know, Glasgow <laughs> or Milky Way or, or Bushwick or whatever. You know, and, and it's incredible, this tiny little planet where we're living. And, you know, any time, any kind of asteroid, any meteorite, any other planet can just crash and we're all gone. And what are we doing here? Why we can't really see the, our life in a different way. I mean, it was like seeing the picture from the other day that NASA released. Did you oh, see? This yeah. Of course, the yeah. NASA pictures. It's a breathtaking. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the NASA people in, in laboratory, they was looking at the pictures. Everybody was crying. Yeah, I feel emotional thinking about it right now. It was we, like glittering. We need to have the big picture. We are constantly living in small picture. But the big picture, what this planet means, and why right now for me the heroism is the only solution. Because we don't have heroes anymore. We have corrupted human beings who, who give such a bad, bad influence on the rest of us. We need the heroes to look into and, and be inspired. Who are your heroes? 
definitely pussy rights. <laughs> like, I think they, 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 you know, they are fearless. Mm. They've been in, from 23rd already in the prison in Russia. Being yeah. Russian pr prison is not fun, I tell you for sure. Martin Luther <laughs> King, you know, Mandela. Then, you know, Gandhi. If you, I, Every politician today should read biography of Gandhi yeah. to, to learn about humanity, being humble, simplicity, and how you can make revolution without splitting any drop of blood. Completely. And who were your heroes growing up? Were your parents your heroes? What impression did they leave on you? You know, to me, it was difficult childhood. It was incredibly controlled. It was so restricted. But looking back, you know, I... I actually learned very hard work. I learned to no compromise. I learned to be honest to myself. I learned to actually think that my private life is not as important in the world, but is really important what you give to others and how you can actually establish for yourself greater purposes and aims that you deliver. You know, that was something that I learned from my parents, this total dedication to what you believe in. And what do you want people to learn from your work? You know, I spent 50 years on making performance as a mainstream art. And I think I succeed to become mainstream art. That's one thing. Second, I also made my institute, which I really like to have legacy of the immaterial performance art is the very important, but also long durational performance art. Not performance art with like one hour, 15 minutes, but something for just like two months, eight hours. Yeah. Because when you do long duration performance art, you're changing mentally, physically, spiritually, and you change public also with you. That's very important. And then to learn the artists to reperform the historical works of different artists so that, that the form of art will never die. So this kind of stuff, really. Marina Ramovic, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I've got one more question for you because this is but the This great will sound like end, but now we have a real question. <laughs> You've got the real question, real question. Okay. As this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests if there was a female artist now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Wow. Which female artist I would like? There, there's so many, but actually two of them, I'm yeah. sorry. No, of course, of course, of course. One would be Frida Carlo. <gasps> Another one will be Louise Bourgeois. What would you say to them? And the Frida Carlo, I would say, you know, just to be more careful and not to have so early accidents <laughs> that she could really, really live longer. That would be wonderful. But somehow she looks like her life was such a big risk. And Louise Bourgeois, I would say, why you wait till you're 60 to make great work? I know that she wait till husband die and the children grown up, but she could also do it earlier. Totally. Marina Abramovic, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening to this very, very special episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the legendary Marina Abramovic. Wow, was it a delight and treat to interview her. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. As always, I have linked to all of her upcoming and current projects, such as with Circa Art, via the show notes. Thank you so much to the wonderful Nada Smilelic for editing this episode. And of course, thank you again to my amazing sponsor, Alighieri Jewellery, who are offering 15% off their timeless modern heirlooms in celebration of this episode with the code the artist is present. And thank you all so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. <laughs>